0: welcome to the robert lewis sermons podcast a collection of sermons from dr lewis during his time as teaching pastor at fellowship bible church in little rock arkansas we desire to see all who are Christ's followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast here's this week's message hosanna god saves lord we shout to joy today on this wonderful palm sunday where today, 2,000 years ago, established by the sovereignty of your heavenly father, you rode into the holy city to see the holy temple, your temple, your home, to be received by your people. Father, we give you praise this day. We are so thankful that there were some who recognized the time of your visitation. Our father, today, as we stand in honor of you, the triumphant king, We pray on this day that You would plow into our own hearts a highway to Zion, that we would see the kingdom of God in this day of visitation, that we would not be foolish, that we would not be darkened in our eyes and deaf in our hearing, that we would not turn away from understanding, but that we would see that You are the King of heaven and the author of life, the forgiver of sins the new life for the people of this planet. Father, we give You praise today and we stand in honor of the triumphant King of Heaven whose name is Jesus and in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I love a crowd like this on Palm Sunday. It's great to see all of you here. It was wonderful to see the kids who were uh, jammed in here waving those palm leaves. Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of God, and would we be as wise as the little children. Today we have a wonderful text before us. It's not in keeping, in a sense, chronologically with where we've been in our series, but we're going to step back and we're going to honor Jesus Christ today by looking into Mark 11 and looking at His triumphal entry. And I know that you would say with me that there are a few things that are more stirring to a community or to a country than welcoming back a triumphant hero. History is filled, as you know, with numerous accounts of grand pageantry and celebration for those who in one way or another have performed spectacularly well. Conquering Greek generals would parade their defeated enemies down Main Street, bound and shackled, and they would then follow this humiliated multitude in a golden chariot. And the comparison between this conquering hero and these defeated foes would drive the crowd into a crazed frenzy of praise. When General Douglas MacArthur retreated from the Philippines during the Japanese invasion in 1942 that swept the island, he left, sadly, but he left them, those Filipinos, with three words, I shall return. And for three long years, MacArthur sought to complete that promise as he worked his armies through the Pacific, island by island. And one can only imagine what it felt like when he openly rode down the streets of Manila as the liberator, as the promise keeper. Can you imagine the celebration of that? Triumphant entries are electric, whether it be for Charles Lindbergh after he became the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic, whether it be the ticker tape parade for John Glenn in New York City, as he came back as the first American to fly in outer space, or the Dallas Cowboys coming home with their third Super Bowl in four years. Everybody loves to welcome a hero. And this was no less true 2,000 years ago, when in Jerusalem a hero of another sort rode into town. Now his reception by comparison to the welcomings that I've just mentioned a few moments ago would be mild and fairly insignificant by comparison we often think of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as an all-out, all-city affair, don't you? I mean, that's the way it was pictured in children's books, and uh, in some ways that's the way we've pictured it even here this morning with the children of our church. But I want you to know, if you read the Gospels carefully, it was not that kind of celebration. The most accurate picture you receive of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was more like a small parade. And believe it or not, most of the shouting that was done, at least initially until some young kids were caught up in it, was mostly done by His own disciples. They were kind of the, uh, you know, the band that came before the big rock star that kind of warmed the crowd up. The disciples were the ones who began shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then some joined in along with them. Now the stir it caused in Jerusalem at this time, which was... Busy getting ready for next week's Passover celebration was probably more like a mild irritation than anything else. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, it says that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, most of the people did understand that this person was coming into town. There was a stir outside the city gates as he paraded in to the city. But rather than celebrating, Matthew tells us that most people were just simply simply stopping for a moment and saying, as he says, who is this? I don't know. Do you know who this guy is? What's all this stir about? That's what Matthew tells us. And most people couldn't answer the question because realistically, few knew who this man was and what this parade was all about. So what makes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem so exhilarating and so special when the attendance was so, so sparse? What puts it right up there with one of the greatest and the grandest triumphal entries in history since so few took notice or didn't even know who he was? I would offer you two suggestions to answer that question. The first is this. Jesus' triumphal entry was special because there has never been the welcoming of a hero that was planned by God himself. Such was the case in Jesus' entry. And secondly, it was hinted at, this entry into Jerusalem, it was hinted at hundreds and hundreds of years before this event actually took place. What celebrated this moment was not the size of the crowd or the questions that were raised. It was the prophetic spotlights that were turned on as Jesus rode into the city on that colt. That illumined the darkness and shouted to a deaf city, that didn't understand these words. Did you hear it? They didn't hear it either. The spotlights were all turned on. It had all been prepared for. The pageantry was ready, prepared by a sovereign God, and it shouted. The only way you could hear it was for you to turn to the scriptural sign language that had been in your Old Testament all along to turn the frequency of your hearing aid to the dials of the prophets, and then you would have understood the parade. Because when you turned on that frequency, you would have heard the word Messiah. Because that's what those spotlights were shouting on that special day. Now I want to look at three of those spotlights for you. The first prophetic spotlight centers on the colt that Jesus rode into the city on. Now Bill has already read about that colt and how Jesus came to get that young donkey to ride into the city in Mark 11. But I want you to know this was no ordinary cult. It was a donkey of destiny. Everyone in Israel should have recognized that donkey in light of the Old Testament prophets. It had been spoken about for 500 years. 500 years this donkey had been talked about through the prophet Zechariah. And I want you to turn there with me. This prophet declared that a donkey would parade the king of salvation through the streets of Jerusalem. Now, no ordinary king would, in his pride, dare ride a donkey. They were used to great stallions, white steeds, and until now, no one ever had. The only person that would ride a donkey in a parade would be a special king with a special message. And so now as you turn back your Old Testament pages 500 years, you come to Zechariah 9, look at verse 9, and read the words with me. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you! He is just. He's endowed with salvation. He's humble. And by the way... He's mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Israel, do you know what time it is? Do you want to know when your Messiah will arrive? Then read the donkey ad. That's what Zechariah would be saying and had said for 500 years. The ad that says, when a remarkable man with a remarkable life, with a remarkable message rides into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, then what time is it? It's Messiah time. That's what time it is. I want you to look at a second prophetic passage, because speaking of time, the second one centers on a calendar. And I want you to turn, since you're in the Old Testament, back to the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Turn with me there for just a moment. I want you to read these passages and see them as I see them in my text. Because as you turn back now, you're turning back to 537 B.C. That's twice the length of the history of our own nation. It's George Washington squared, okay? That's where we are in history. 537 years before Jesus Christ. Look with me in chapter 9, verse 24. I want you to follow real closely because this is very important to the message. Daniel prophesies this. He says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, that is the people of Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy weeks to finish out sin on this planet. Now look at verse 25. So you are to know, okay? You're to mark this down and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes, Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. Now follow with me if you will. Notice in verse 24 it speaks of 70 weeks. Seventy weeks have been decreed for the nation of Israel to have a ministry in the world. Now, the Jewish calendar was not based on tens. We base everything on tens, but the Jewish calendar was based on sevens. Seven days of creation, seven days a week, uh, seven times uh, seven, the 49 years before the year of Jubilee, and so on and so forth. And so they counted by sevens. All scholars agree that a week in this kind of context represents seven years. So I want you to notice verse 24. Seventy sevens, do you see that? Seventy sevens that are decreed for the life of Israel to have a ministry in the world would be, by decree, 490 years. Everybody see that? Shake your head if you do. Okay, 490 years, because I want to show you something spectacular. Notice in verse 25 then that a calendar is set for the coming of Messiah. And we read the clock. Because in that verse it says, from the, you need to know and discern, he says, from the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem after it's destroyed, from the time that decree is issued until the time that Messiah the Prince will walk into Jerusalem will be 69 weeks. Now we know from secular historians like Herodotus, the Greek, and we also know from our own Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah, When Nehemiah the cupbearer was told by the Persian king to rebuild the city, we know the date that was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. It was 445 B.C. So from the time of the issuing of the decree in 445 B.C., there would be approximately 483 years until the coming of Messiah the Prince. Do you see that? 69 weeks, 7 weeks. Times 69, 483 years. So you got a calendar of sorts, 445 BC. If you move 483 years forward, Messiah the Prince will come, right? Well, not exactly. Because Jewish years are are lunar years. And uh, our calendar is based on solar years of 365 days a year. A Jewish year, a lunar year is based on 360 days a year. So you have to make some adjustments between solar years and lunar years. And when you do that, you make some adjustments for the shorter years and 483 lunar years represent 476 solar years. So let's add that to our calendar. If you go from 445 BC forward, 476 solar years, what do you get? Well, if you add those up, you get 31 AD, right? Except one thing. From 1 B.C. to 180, you skip the year zero. So you have to add one other year. So what you get as the correct answer from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem 476 years later, you come to the year 32 A.D. That's when Messiah will come according to the book of Daniel that was written in 537 B.C. And so the nation of Israel... Hearkening the prophetic calendar, if they were just tuned in, they would have understood if a remarkable man with a remarkable life, with a remarkable message, if he were to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey in 32 AD, 483 years, lunar years later since the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, then according to Daniel's prophecy, they would have known it's Messiah time. The spotlight had been turned on. There's a third prophetic spotlight, the one concerning not the cult or the calendar, but the crowd itself that you find over in Mark chapter 11. Remember, they were shouting Hosanna and so on and so forth. And as they shouted that, you'll notice in Mark 11 that those scriptures are capitalized. Now, anytime you see a scripture capitalized in in the New Testament, that's a quote out of the Old Testament. So I want you to turn back a thousand years to Psalm 118. A thousand years to Psalm 118. 18. And I want to start with verse 22 because verse 22 helps us understand that we're dealing with the Messiah or a messianic, what they call a messianic psalm. Turn there with me. There you go. In Psalm 118, verse 22, the psalmist says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now we know that to be Messiah. Messiah. Because all through the New Testament, Jesus is called the cornerstone. But the cornerstone has been rejected by the leaders of Israel. It says in verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Now we think of that in a a song that we sing. This is the day as if we're talking about our day. But when they sung that this is the day, they were looking for the day of Messiah. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then the psalmist says, O Lord, do save. Or in Hebrew, Hosanna. We beseech Thee, O Lord. We beseech Thee. Do send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 1,000 years later, a gathering crowd began to shout spontaneously what Psalm 118 said they would shout on that day even though the leaders of Israel on that day had totally rejected Him. They would shout, Hosanna! God saves! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! And as those people began to shout that, and as that sound rang throughout the streets of Jerusalem, here's what the people, if they would have simply been tuned in, would have heard. They would have heard that if a remarkable man, with a remarkable life, with a remarkable message were to ride in on a donkey in 32 AD, as Daniel had prophesied in 537 B.C., he would, since the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and he would come in and everybody would be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then what time is it? It's Messiah time. That's what made the triumphal entry the grandest and greatest entry of a welcoming hero in history. It is because it had been planned by the sovereign God of the universe, set up, worked out, and on this day 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ in 32 AD rode into Jerusalem as the King. The problem was only a few knew it. Now there's one additional observation I'd like to make about this remarkable entry, but Mark doesn't record it. It's recorded in another gospel, and we find that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, as this small crowd cheered and waved palm branches and threw their garments in the road for Him, as children smiled and they waved and shouts of Hosanna filled the air, as all this was transpiring, what do you think Jesus was doing? Well, I want you to turn to Luke 19 because what Luke 19 tells us He was doing is that He was crying. With all the the celebration of this parade, Jesus Christ was crying. Look at verse 41 of Luke 19. It says, And when he approached, that is, Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus cried because Jerusalem was about to miss. As verse 42 says, look at it. It's the most important line. The things which make... For peace. And as a result, judgment would soon fall. In fact, Jesus is prophesying in verse 30, uh, 43 and 44. He's saying judgment's going to come because you missed this day. And 40 years later, Titus would bring his legions from Rome and surround the city and do just what the verse says, set up siege works against it. And they waited the people out until they starved them almost to death. And finally, within the city, the people of the city resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. They began to eat one another. And then the city fell and the Romans, who were so angry that it had taken that long to take the city, came in, burned it with fire. As they burned it with fire, the gold from the temple melted into the rocks. And then to get that gold out, they took plows and they plowed up even the foundation stone so that not one stone remained as it originally was. Jerusalem was completely devastated. All this because on this day, this Palm Sunday, prepared by God Himself... Israel missed the things that really make for peace. Listen, you can't be in ministry, and a lot of you are in ministry very long, before you utter those very same words. Can you? You watch a married couple drowned in their own white water, when right before them, <laughs> right on the table, are the things that make for peace. You watch a dad mishandle his children and leave wounds that'll last a lifetime. When right in this very place are the things that make for peace. You watch a world turn itself upside down with its silly values. Sometimes you just scratch your head and say, this world is crazy. It's nuts with its silly values and its misplaced priorities. And the consequences are paraded before them every day, but they can't see and they can't hear. And they won't listen, especially they won't listen to the things that make for peace. But then there's some bright shining examples like the one that I experienced this week when I participated in one of the most unique ceremonies I've ever enjoyed. It involved a family, a family that years ago broke up in our church by divorce. And in the process of that divorce, the wife left And she was not only angry with her family and her husband, but she was angry with the church and the stand the church took in regards to her unsupportable divorce. So she left. And for years, she's been out in the community railing against our body, as she told me. But then in the last few years, God has begun to do a remarkable work in her life. And so a few months ago, she came into my office, made an appointment with me, and sat down, and she told me about the change in her life. And she wanted to ask forgiveness for her response years ago. her husband is remarried, they have two children, and so we talked about that and we talked about the road back. We talked about the things which make for peace, things like confession and humility and all those things which she exhibited so wonderfully that day. One of the steps she needed to take was to go talk to one of the pastors that she had offended. So she went back and she did that. And then she called me and she said she wanted to help her kids reconcile this, this struggle because for years, bet- even between her church, the church she's going to now and our church had been tension about where the kids should go and all the things that happened with blended families. So I contacted her ex-husband and he was in agreement and a stepmom, and so uh, we talked that week and we got the pastors from the two churches and the youth pastors from the two churches and this Thursday we sat in a room in the special event center with both families there, all the pastors from the churches there and the kids. And I watched as each of these parents confessed their sins towards one another, as they told how they would no longer undercut one another or try to use the kids as to get advantage or to overcome the other. I watched as the pastors shared their love for these and that we're going to let all these things that go, forgiveness, And press on, like Philippians said, to the high calling of Christ Jesus. And then we got up around the kids, and the parents laid their hands on the kids, and the pastors laid their hands on the parents, and we prayed that God might make a wonderful new start that day. You know what that's called? It's called the things that make for peace. And they sit right in front of every one of us every day in a world that's turned upside down and it's not listening. Now, if you would, I want you to turn back to Mark 11 for just a moment. Because in Mark 11, after the triumphal entry, Jesus does some things. Remember, He's head of state. And what does a head of state do when He comes back to His country? Well, He makes a formal inspection of the country and of the spiritual condition, in this case, of the nation of Israel. And there's a little verse here, after chapter, verse 10, in Mark 11, it says this. Look at verse 11. It says, And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. That's His house. And after looking all around, he departed. Now, there was no one there to celebrate with him in the temple. But notice that little phrase, he looked all around. It's a powerful verse. He examined everything in the temple, he gave it a complete going over, and then he left as the head of state. What did he find in the temple? Well, he found priests conducting religious ceremonies that had long ago lost their real meaning. He found his word twisted. And compromise. People still use it as liturgy. They still quoted the creeds. Problem is, they just didn't believe it anymore, or live it, or be passionate about it. It was just something to do on Saturday. He found people going through dry religious motions to somehow appease a God they really didn't know and had never really experienced. He found commercialism, people making all kinds of money off of just a religious game. That's what the head of state found when he came into his house. He found in the heart of his kingdom a terminal case of heart disease, which then led him to make two pronouncements, two very severe, by by the way, pronouncements the next day. I want you to look at verse 12. It says, And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry, and seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, I want you to look at that verse, because if you didn't know it, the fig tree is a symbol for the nation of Israel. And here Jesus does something kind of odd. He curses a fig tree for not having figs when noticed in the verse, verse 13, it was not the season for figs. Now that seems odd. Doesn't it to you? Everybody, if you're with me. Okay, good. You know, I'm told that when a fig tree bears its leaves before the season of figs, it bears with it, like you see in a lot of the foliage around Arkansas, it bears a little thing called a prefig. And a prefig is a sign that the tree is going to bear a full bushel of figs later on. And I want you to notice that when Jesus came up to this tree, as it says, He examined it, look, very closely in verse 13. You see it there? And what did He find on it? Nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. Which meant that this tree, just like the nation of Israel that He had expected the day before very carefully was a fraud. It was empty. There was no substance to it. It was a pretend fig tree. It looked like a fig tree. It acted like a fig tree. It bore leaves like a fig tree. There's only one problem. It was never gonna produce like a fig tree was intended to produce. In reality, the fig tree and the nation of Israel are one and the same. Here's the words I want you to write down. Both were barren of authenticity. Israel looked like a holy nation. It, it performed rituals like a holy nation. It recited creeds like a holy nation. It went to church like a holy nation. The only thing it didn't do was bear fruit like a holy nation. It's the same way when you come into church on Sunday and all the kids are up front, and there's a celebration, and we say, Lord, I lift your name on high. Wasn't that great with a kid singing, Lord, I lift your name on high. We want to hold it up. We want to make it holy. And then next week, you're in a pressured business meeting as the CEO, and somebody didn't perform, and around that business table, you say, GD this and GD that. Lord, I lift your name on high. You know what that's called? That's called barren authenticity. And it's the worst form of religious fraud that there is on this planet. It turns more people away and more people off when you bear the name of Christ and you blasphemy Him in the midst of a day. Such was the case of the nation of Israel as well. Jesus' second pronouncement on Israel is that it was also not just barren of authenticity, it was full of hypocrisy. Look at verse 15, it says, "...they came to Jerusalem... And he entered the temple and he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and of the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You've made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. They shouldn't have been, but they were, because this guy was full of authenticity. He reaped of integrity, and the people were astonished, because there was a real leader finally in their midst. You know how we make this place or any other church become a name other than the name that it should be, a house of worship and a house of prayer. It is when the main purpose for coming on a Sunday morning or to church or to some of the activities is not to meet God anymore. The main intent is not to get up to go meet God and to worship Him and hear from Him. The heart isn't prepared with that as the central purpose. No, we come for other reasons. And most of those reasons is to get something for me, to take something. I might come because the church is a nice place to meet a young man and I'm single. Maybe I come as a businessman. It's a great place to rub shoulders with people of means. And so I might can do commerce with them. Or the church is a good place for my kids. Doesn't mean much to me, but my kids need this. Or people will take care of me here, so I want to go. Or I like the music. Or I need the church to stay encouraged. It makes me feel good Sunday, I get Sunday to Sunday. I, I get a lift by being here, and that's why I go. Now I want you to know, there's nothing wrong with those benefits. There, there's some side benefits to being a part of a church culture. But when your prime reason for being here is not to meet God, not to be transformed by Him in some special way, then you turn church into another name. They turned it into a robber's den. Some of you here turned it into a singles bar. Some of you here turned it into a chamber of commerce. Some of you here, we could call it the country club. Some of it is a daycare center. Some of it is a concert hall, a welfare office, a counseling center. But the primary purpose of this place is to meet and be transformed by the living God. It's not all for you. It's it's for Him that we're here. I don't care if you don't like to sing. You need to be here to lift your voice in praise to the King of the universe. Because He's King. He's Lord. And the privilege that you get to meet with Him is above any other privilege in your life. And any secondary reason for being here is a very low point if it's your main purpose. Israel was full of that kind of hypocrisy. So let me ask you, why are you here today? For what purpose? What's the primary motivation? Listen, I want to tell you, this is not a simple question I'm asking you. This is one of the most fundamental questions of spiritual life. If you need to be transformed by worship, and we all do, then the primary reason for getting up and being here is because you want the privilege of meeting, meeting with the living God as a corporate body. Well, look at verse 20. It says, after Jesus made these two really severe pronouncements on the nation of Israel, it says, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. Jesus had cursed it earlier. Now it had withered from the root up. Because that's where it really was withered, by the way, at the root, which is a symbol for the heart. And so being reminded, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. But notice Jesus' answer. He says to them, have faith in God. Now I want you to circle in your Bibles that phrase because that is the key phrase of this whole passage. It is the good news of the triumphal entry. Just this simple little phrase, have faith in God. Now listen to me. Faith in God is life's most critical ingredient. You know, we talk about faith so much it doesn't mean anymore, it mean anything anymore. And I want to I bring it back down, this little simple statement, and give some life to it. Faith is life's most critical ingredient. If Israel would have had faith in God and His Word, there would have not just been a small crowd and a few children waving palm branches on this triumphal entry. Not just the whole city, the whole nation would have been out bowing down on their knees and crying out, Hosanna, as Jesus entered into the holy city. The whole nation would have poured out for the prince of peace. If Israel would have had a real faith in God, the temple would have been the most authentic place of worship in the whole world. And not just Jews would have worshipped there. The whole nation would have packed that temple and worshipped the living God because of the light of authenticity, spiritual authenticity, that the Jewish nation would have radiated to the world if they would have had faith, real faith in God. Faith in God is life's most critical ingredient. It is what motivates people to live beyond themselves. Faith is what inspires selflessness. No self-esteem class can do that. No helping program can do that. Nothing can take you beyond yourself unless there's something bigger than yourself and you believe it so much that you have faith in it. Faith is what opens the door to a world of spiritual life and adventure. Faith is what causes people to trust an unseen God rather than shrink back in fear. Faith is the only thing that in the end keeps life on track rightly and extracts from life The very best. It's called faith. In Luke 18, when Jesus speaks of His second coming to planet Earth, a time that's still future to us, when He will come not as a humble king on a donkey, but as a triumphant king in the air, in the clouds. I want you to know, it's interesting to me, that the issue, the concern that's still on His mind, as it was here in His first entry, is still the issue of faith. Now don't turn there, but let me just read you Luke 18, because here's what Luke says. He says, will He delay in His second coming? I tell you, He will bring about justice. And then He says, however, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Faith in an unseen God in an unseen kingdom is life's most critical ingredient. I've seen broken friendships healed... By faith. I've seen lives transformed just simply by faith. I've seen people healed physically by faith. I've seen addictions conquered where no one else could conquer it. By faith. I've seen great ideas spawned. Ideas that were going to cause people to sacrifice their whole lives by faith. We've got a bunch of young men who've lived in China the last 10 years. You don't know them? you probably will hardly ever see them. Some of them are in Mongolia and other places, and they're, only, they're there for one reason, giving up their whole life. It's by faith. I've seen people completely transformed in my office by just simply bowing their head and making a highway to their heart for the Messiah by faith. There was nothing tangible there. It was all by faith in an unseen God. And I have seen acts of courage because of faith. I want to tell you one act that I saw just this week because of faith in God. You know, each week you come in here and you enjoy the different uh, slides that are on the, the screen and the different uh, aids to worship that come up there. And, and I want you to know that is very difficult to do. That, that looks like a small thing, but it's really a big thing. And that's done by a group of dedicated people who are here at fellowship, they're not paid, they're lay people who give of their time, sometimes hours and hours a week, just to help you visualize some of what we're speaking about in preaching. And one of those who serves in that capacity is a man by the name of Bob Gibson, who, whose enthusiasm for the visual part is really contagious when you sit down and talk with him. Not too many weeks ago, the company with which Bob works came to him and, and, and uh, revealed to him that the company was going to change some policies. And because of a desire to increase profits, they were going to start opening up on Sundays. And in the discussions that followed, it soon, soon became obvious to Bob that he was being placed between a rock and a hard place, between his service to Christ that he loves and his job. Now listen to me. We're talking job, vocation, livelihood, money. You know, there are a lot of possible answers to that hard place. Bob's answer was, have faith in God. So tomorrow is his last day of work. Tuesday, Bob will be on the high seas of faith, trusting courageously an unseen God and pursuing an unseen kingdom. Next week on Easter, when you're up in your seat or in the balcony or whatever, and the opening slides come up for the song that we're going to sing, remember the faith that's putting those words on the screen. It's not just a paid person back there. It's the faith of Bob Gibson that's on that screen. So where are you this Palm Sunday morning? As we celebrate the greatest entry into a city that's ever occurred. I want you to remember that the only way the Prince of Peace can find a triumphant welcome into your heart, especially if you're just now contacting the living God, the only way the triumphant King can rule over your heart, tomorrow and the next day. So in that board meeting, You don't curse God. You praise Him. And you have a bumper sticker that speaks of your life. It's not just a piece of paper. The only way you can do that is by faith. The King of Hearts is welcomed by that road or He doesn't come in. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.